Hi, good afternoon. Welcome to the Hudson Institute. Um, my name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here, and I will be moderating this afternoon our panel on um, our panel on Jordan. And I want to welcome uh, you as well as our very distinguished panelist. Uh, to my immediate left is uh, Faisal Itani with the Atlantic Council. Um, to the I will allow them to make longer introductions about the kind of work they do, but these are all people who, who, work, uh, who work extensively on Jordan. Uh, to Faisal's left is Salam al-Namat, um, who has worked, worked in the United States with the, uh, with the Arab press for uh, 25 years. Is that right? Something like that. So for quite a while. Um, knows Jordan, knows Jordan very well. Um, and to his left is David Schenker from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And David is one of the top, if not the top, Jordan expert in Washington, uh, certainly among them. Um, I, I think the, the value of this afternoon's panel is, uh, in addition to the distinguished panelist, is that Jordan, especially with different things that are happening now around the region, Jordan is uh, frequently not paid attention to. And it, of course, it should be because this is a significant and long-time uh, American ally um, in the region, and which, <clears throat> while right now is still a, still a beacon of stability, the question is, will Jordan be able to withstand the various, uh, the various winds, the buffeting winds in the region that seem to be uh, striking a number of different places? I mean, some of the other questions that I believe we'll be considering this afternoon will be whether or not uh, ISIS... Uh, also known now as the Islamic State, whether this will affect, uh, whether this will affect the Hashemite Kingdom. Uh, what about Iran's larger regional project? Um, will this affect Jordan as well? Specifically, what about uh, Hamas, uh, an, Iranian, uh, an Iranian asset? Uh, will, they, will this hurt Jordan as well? Will they get a major place on the West Bank? Um, then there are different domestic issues that we're going to want to touch on, including, uh, including perhaps most dauntingly for, uh, for Amman, would be the refugee crisis now, in addition to Palestinian refugees and the Iraqi refugees, also, uh, also Syrian refugees. So we've got a lot to, uh, a lot to cover and uh, a terrific panel. And again, thank you for coming. And right now I'm going to ask uh, Faisal to make, uh, to make his brief introduction. Uh, thank, thank you, Lee. Uh, thanks uh, both to you and uh, the Hudson Institute for uh, having me here. Uh, I'm a uh, resident, very briefly, I'm a resident fellow at uh, the Atlantic Council's Rafik Hariri Center for the Middle East, uh, where I work uh, primarily on uh, the Levant, uh, as well as uh, ISIS and what is now, what has now become uh, the theater of Iraq. Uh, would you like me to start? Uh, yeah, just w whatever, whatever you'd like to touch on, whatever, yeah. you know, whatever you think uh, that is, is really most noteworthy and what, what you'd like us to come back to later as well. Sure. Uh, I'm going to start by, with a popular topic, uh, the ISIS topic and the implications for Jordan in specific. Uh, firstly, I like to look at it from the angle of the sort of short-term proximate terrorist threat to Jordan, but also, you know, sort of fast forward a bit and look at it as a, what I believe to be a more strategic, long-term, and, and new creative kind of threat that we haven't seen before. Uh, <coughs> to a certain degree, the threat, in my view, in the short term is limited, uh, but it's limited for a number of reasons that aren't, aren't themselves uniformly comforting. 
Uh, and as we're going to see, a lot of the reasons that it's limited are not related specifically to actions of the Jordanian government, but rather to circumstances that uh, are now working favorably uh, in, in the government's favor, but may not continue to do so. Uh, the first is, of course, uh, the relatively capable security forces in Jordan, their loyalty, their cohesiveness, which uh, puts them in stark contrast to those of other neighboring countries of Syria that have struggled with ISIS, including uh, Lebanon, Iraq, and of course, uh, Syria itself. And this has helped uh, the state with its interdiction efforts, with border control, with penetrating ISIS networks, and with collecting and sharing intelligence. Uh, there is also, it should be mentioned, a quite substantial border control effort aided by the United States and other allies, and that has to a degree been quite effective. Uh, contrast this with what's happened on the Syrian-Turkish border, uh, which has been basically a no-man's land and a free-for-all uh, for fighters uh, both going in both directions, rather. Uh, to, uh, Jordan also enjoys the fact that it is among the higher priorities in U.S. Middle East policy, having been seen as a strategic partner that the United States cannot afford to let fail. Uh, so to this administration, at least, Jordan is important in and of itself, and arguably quite a bit more important than, than Syria, actually. Uh, another positive factor, if you will, for Jordan is the fact that there does, and I don't want to overstate the fact, seem to be some sort of meaningful political life for Islamist groups there. Some avenues, avenues uh, for asserting grievances that simply are non-existent in places like Syria and Iraq. Uh, but again, I don't want to overstate that fact because, as we'll see, the relationship with different parts of the Jordanian population to Islamist groups varies considerably, and it's very complicated. Uh, there is a degree of institutional legitimacy in Jordan, uh, and by that I don't mean any particular king or any particular figure, but the institution of the monarchy. Frankly, I don't know the degree to which that is true, and it's always impossible to tell. Uh, but it seems that a substantial amount, proportion of... Jordanians believe this institution is something they can live with if not, work, is not, if not fight to preserve. Uh, there is a fear, and I think it's across the Arab world, but particularly in Jordan, of becoming Syria, uh, of issuing a violent challenge to the government, uh, and spiraling down to sort of the unknown. Uh, there are no sectarian fault lines in Jordan. doesn't mean there aren't any population fault lines, uh, but... It's difficult to exaggerate the degree to which, in particular, the Sunni-Shia hostility has animated ISIS's principles and generated recruits for them. Uh, and, you know, rather, rather interestingly, Jordanian Salafi jihadist fighters have tended to gravitate towards Jabhat al-Nusra. Uh, there are a number of geographic and uh, social reasons for that. Uh, and Jabhat al-Nusra itself is, of course, still an ideological work in progress. We don't know what they are and they aren't and where they're headed ideologically. We don't know the degree to which they're Syria-focused versus trans transnationally-focused. Uh, and ironically, Jabhat al-Nusra itself, to which Jordanians gravitate, is checked by ISIS in Syria. Uh, so depending on how that balance of power swings, uh, that, would affect, that would affect whatever risk profile Jordan faces. Till now, Jordan is, one of my colleagues put it, a net exporter of fighters rather than an importer. And that's, to, in the short term, worked in its favor, as has ISIS's near-term focus on 
consolidating territory in Syria and Iraq. But above all, I think the most important thing temporarily working in Jordan's favor is the geography of the Syrian civil war. Uh, namely that the southern theater, if you will, in, in uh, Syria is still dominated by FSA brigade groups and mainstream non-jihadist rebels. Uh, that has facilitated the, the, the uh, issue of border control, also played off healthier, I'd say healthier is one way of putting it, social structures of southern Syria, the fact that it's slightly less fragmented than the north and slightly less amenable to capture by ISIS. And of course, there's the military situation. ISIS has just not been able to make that much headway in, in the south or around Damascus. That is, of course, always in flux and nothing that can be taken for granted. But now I'll, I'll sort of briefly segue into, the, into what I feel are the, the dangers of the threats, uh, starting with the fact that borders are themselves always porous, uh, regardless of how short or long they are and how well they're policed, and the defeat, indeed the fact that there are tens of thousands of undocumented Syrians who enter Jordan illegally is, is a case in point. Uh, the second case is that ISIS has made substantial progress in Ambad province, which is, of course, uh, shares a long border with Jordan, and to the extent that they succeed there and consolidate, they position themselves to be able to project power into Jordan. I'll say a bit more about that in a second. Uh, the FSA is, of course, in trouble uh, in Syria, and that is, and has always been, the main thing checking, uh, checking ISIS. Uh, whether or not their situation improves or not is due to so many factors that I'm not going to go into here. But needless to say, it doesn't look very positive at the moment, even in the South. Uh, there, are, there are disenfranchised Jordanians, persons alienated from the regime and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, for, different, for different reasons. Uh, and they obviously are a potential recruitment ground for jihadist fighters. Uh, and Jabhat al-Nusra, which has proven popular among Jordanian Salafi fighters, is itself not ideologically extremely dissimilar from ISIS, and we may be seeing a situation, an evolution in Syria, whereby, Jordan, whereby Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS move closer together, both ideologically and agenda-wise, and whereby, in fact, if ISIS continues to be the success story of of uh, jihadism in the Levant, uh, one may it may well just absorb or swallow, or swallow uh, Jabhat al-Nusra. Uh, there is, to be crazy not to mention, the very large undocumented refugee population uh, in Jordan, which is going to be there for the foreseeable future, and indeed the large documented one as well. At this moment, this is not a heavily politicized, and certainly not a militarized population. I don't see a way in which we can project indefinitely into the future and imagine that this will continue to be a docile hmm. sort of population in disarray without any political orientation and without the means, the means to address their quite considerable grievances. Uh, but, you know, going beyond all this sort of short-term tactical and military and social analysis, I think there's always been a misconception, widely held, though not universally, that ISIS is a sort of loose transnational terrorist network, and the thoughts about countering it, including in Jordan and in the United States and in Iraq, has been to think of it as such and craft strategy accordingly. To me, ISIS has always been, first and foremost, a state-building enterprise. Um, and because it's a state-building enterprise focused on capturing population 
territory and resources, it follows that they are not going to be immediately obsessing with carrying out attacks in Jordan, uh, which isn't to say there won't be any. Uh, but that's to say that is not their metric of success. Their metric of success is the ability to build the caliphate and develop the means for confrontation with the West and its allies. Of course, Jordan is very much at top of that list. Uh, so it's a sort of boundless commitment and ambition that has deep appeal to disenfranchise Sunni Muslims worldwide, uh, even if not among the Arab population that is unfortunate enough to have to interact with it much. Uh, but I, I think as long as, th as, long as this, the counter strategy to ISIS is one of containment rather than sort of rolling them back and destroying them, and as I see that continues to be the case, I don't see how, well, I'm actually pretty confident that they will develop the means to eventually pose a serious challenge in Jordan. And I'll, I'll stop there, Lee. Thanks. That's terrific, Faisal. Thanks very much. And uh, there's a lot for us to, uh, to come back to. Um, Salama, if you, would, uh, if you would say a few words as well. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, um, I'm going to generally agree uh, with uh, the extensive list of factors at play in, on the Jordanian political and economic scene uh, and how that would affect uh, the, our, or determine the, uh, the threat from ISIS and, and other extremist groups in the region. I would probably just add a couple of uh, other factors that are important in explaining why Jordan is probably less vulnerable than uh, some countries in the region, uh, maybe in some ways less vulnerable than uh, um, uh, Saudi Arabia because of the Shiite factor uh, that is non-existent in Jordan in the sense that the, uh, the whole uh, ISIS phenomena, in my view, uh, and, and the uh, Jabhat al-Nusra is the product of the uh, uh, Iranian uh, role in the region, uh, which is not uh, recent. Goes back to you could go back to uh, the uh, formation of Hezbollah in Lebanon and how that uh, became how Hezbollah became an arm of the Iranian foreign policy in the region and uh, of course the support for the Syrian regime, which has been uh, basically um, uh, killing its own people for the last uh, three and a half years. Uh, so uh, and of course the Maliki's government, supported uh, supported by Iran, uh, has played also a role in. Uh, giving a raison d'etre for the, these uh, uh, extremist Islamists, uh, such as Daesh and others, to emerge on the scene. Not to mention that the, the Arab Spring itself showed how vulnerable the regimes in the region are and how, uh, you know, how these uh, apparently very uh, solid regimes uh, you know, collapse very quickly, as, as happened in, in Egypt and, and elsewhere. So I think if we understand that this is a reaction, the uh, ISIS is a reaction to an action that uh, spans a couple of decades, possibly. And I think Iran here is the main uh, factor, the main player in bringing about this kind of uh, extremism from the Sunni side. Mm. Uh, if you want to explain uh, Jabhat al-Nusra and you want to explain uh, uh, ISIS. So uh, to say you know, where things are going to go from here is very difficult. We need to see how uh, the uh, newly uh, designated prime minister of Iraq, for example, you know, uh, set up, sets up a government, a law, uh, an all-inclusive government that would start reversing policies that were adopted by Maliki on Iran's behalf uh, in many ways. And uh, we have to see how the situation also develops on the Syrian front in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of whether 
we were going to have something similar to what happened in Iraq take place in Syria and somehow pushing the regime towards uh, agreeing to some kind of a power sharing or let's say a transitional uh, government that would probably ease that kind of polarization that is caused by Iran's policies across the board in the region. And of course, we shouldn't forget that Iran has, a, you know, has played a role in the uh, Bahrain crisis and in, 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 uh, in other Gulf countries like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. And that uh, naturally brought about you know, the failure also of governments and regimes in the region to deal with the Iranian, effectively deal with the Iranian challenge as we've witnessed in, in Lebanon and, uh, and in Syria, uh, has also uh, contributed to the rise of the uh, militant extremists such as uh, Daesh, ISIS, and, and, and Jabhat al-Nusra. So uh, I think the answer to how much is this a threat to Jordan, as much as it is to uh, other countries, as I explained, you know, the Lebanon-Iraq situation, because of the internal Sunni-Shiite factor, they're going to continue to be vulnerable until until they can start to uh, become more independent of the Iranian influence. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm very determined that it is not enough for uh, the government's uh, concern to deal with this in, in isolation of where Iran takes this confrontation, continuous con confrontation across the board in the region. As I said, again, coming back to the Jordan uh, situation, uh, in addition to the factors that are mentioned, um, there are the key regional powers support uh, Jordan, countries like Saudi Arabia. They would not like to see uh, a monarchy uh, uh, in Jordan uh, shaken by uh, anybody, regardless whether it's ISIS or an anybody else. Uh, the Israelis who are uh, cooperating also with Jordan on security matters, on border issues, also have no interest in seeing another front open uh, to them after, you know, they have the Gaza front, they have the Syria front, and they have the Lebanon front to deal with. So, uh, again, this is also a, fat, a factor that helps Jordan, at least in the short and uh, medium terms, uh, deal with the, uh, the uh, existing challenges. Uh, the, the support of the United States is also <coughs> an important factor. And, uh, and because we're talking about this polarization, this uh, uh, regional confrontation, Iran and its allies versus uh, the Sunni governments and their allies in the region, uh, we can, you know, we can sort of conclude that uh, Jordan will, on the short and medium term, be able to deal with <coughs> the immediate challenges posed uh, by ISIS. On the other side of the uh, this image is that ISIS ha does not look at Jordan as a priority. First, because there is no Sunni Shiite internal factor in Jordan. Number two, uh, Jordan has not been uh, violent in, in oppressing its, uh, its own dissent. Uh, and that's uh, very important because, you know, the more you oppress, the more uh, violent the regimes are, as we've seen in Syria, the more violent is the reaction by the militants who gravitate, you know, uh, they become, it becomes easier for them to recruit people when you have victims uh, of the uh, oppression by the state. So this is also another factor. The Jordan has dealt in a more intelligent way with it, the internal challenges, as well as the economic uh, challenge, which is massive. And uh, as such, I, I would say that, uh, you know, looking, uh, it's very, very difficult to look long-term on stability in, on Jordan in, in isolation of uh, regional uh, developments uh, re related to Iraq uh, and Syria and to uh, 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 other degrees, the, the Gulf states, uh, Lebanon, 
uh, all these, uh, you know, as we've seen, uh, are factors that, that will shape the future of, of stability in Jordan. I will, I will stop here and, and leave it open. That's terrific. Thanks very much, Salman. Uh, David? Hi. Uh, can you hear me back there? Uh, Lee, thank you to you and Hudson for hosting this timely and, and uh, I think really overlooked Thanks, issue and, and having a panel on this. I, I know Faisal and Salama for, for years, and um, unfortunately, I, I don't know if they've left me anything to say. Um, you, you and I have known each other for years, too. I yeah, just wanted yeah, to remind you. Okay. Uh, um, it's been a busy couple of weeks in Jordan. <laughs> you had, uh, just a few days ago, the Jordanian military reportedly battled seven armed men attempting to illegally enter the kingdom from Syria. The parliament this week, at the request of the government, is expected to vote on two constitutional amendments, allowing the king to appoint the head of the armed forces and the director of the GID, the General Intelligence Directorate, the government also announced uh, in the past weeks that it was moving ahead with plans to build two nuclear energy reactors. Um, this is bad news, by the way. We can get back to that another time. Uh, meanwhile, like the United States, this is the first week of school in Jordan, back to school week. And the teachers, 140,000 of them, are on strike, asking for 50% wage increases. And oh yes, uh, within a 72-hour period this week, 500 more Syrian refugees entered the kingdom. Now, in the United States, and here on this panel, we're focused on Jordanian security, and certainly so is the Jordanian regime. But before I get to the security threats, I want to remind everyone what King Abdullah said earlier this week. He said, and I quote, if we can solve the problem of the economy, we will overcome the biggest challenge facing us today because our problem is not political or a security one. It is about economy. So let me just talk about Jordan's economy for a moment. This week, it was reported that Jordan's trade deficit increased to 5.3 billion Jordanian dinars, or a little less than $4 billion. Jordan's GDP is about $31 billion or so. Its annual budget is slightly over $10 billion. Uh, this deficit is being driven by fuel costs, in large part due to the destruction of Egyptian uh, the gas pipeline, which has been destroyed repeatedly since the, uh, the revolution in 2011. In 2012, uh, this deficit, the Jordan having to go out and purchase the gas and the oil on the open market, uh, accounted for nearly a 30% budget deficit. In the first six months of this year alone, Jordan's fuel imports accounted for 2.2 billion Jordanian dinars, an increase of 27% over the same period last year. The approximately 1.5 million Syrian refugees in Jordan are taxing the economy. 80% of these refugees, uh, it's important to note, live outside of the refugee camps of Zatari and Azraq. They're working, they're buying food, they're renting apartments, <coughs> and they're being subsidized in part by the UN High Commission on Refugees. Uh, officially, unemployment in Jordan is about 12, 13%, but it's probably closer to about 30%. Syrians are working multiple jobs. Now, how much of a problem is this? Uh, this week, the Jordanian Minister of Labor um, announced that it closed 125 companies in Jordan who were illegally employing Syrian expatriates, presumably at lower wages. Uh, during a tribal town, Tefila, uh, last year, um, or about six months ago, I spoke to an East Banker Jordanian uh, who complained to me that the Syrians were, quote unquote, taking the food out of our mouths. Housing costs in Jordan are going up. Uh, commodity prices are also increasing. Uh, the Jordanian press is reporting Increases in, in meat prices, powdered milk, among other products. A kilo of locally produced sheep has risen from 9 to 11 JDs in recent months. Uh, we can discuss this 
later, maybe during Q&A, but I have a fear that we're going to see an eventual backlash against the Syrian refugees uh, fueled by uh, these economic issues. And with nearly 40% of the housing um, estimated uh, destroyed in Syria, and with no end in sight to the Assad regime, these refugees aren't going to be going home anytime soon. And if they stay for 10 years, they're going to plant roots, and they're probably going to stay indefinitely. At the same time, in line with structural reforms, commitments to the IMF to get a $2 billion loan, the government has raised the price of flour, subsidized mills, raised the price of kerosene, raising the price of electric. The government is also working on a new tax law. This is unpopular, as you can imagine. The, the trade syndicates are already saying that it's going to hurt the middle class. Uh, they may be right. We've heard that line before. Back in 2012, in November, there were some signs of a coalescing political opposition to the palace, an agglomeration of the Muslim Brotherhood and, uh, and the Herak, that is, uh, East Banker tribal critics of the, of the, of the king and the regime. Um, but the Muslim Brotherhood really um, is not a factor. Um, they did manage to uh, mobilize a big pro-Hamas rally earlier uh, in August, but they've largely been peripheralized since the toppling of Mohamed Morsi in Egypt. Mm. Uh, the organization also boycotted the last two elections, the, the, um, the local elections and the, and the parliamentary elections. Uh, they've called for the expulsion of the Israeli ambassador from Amman and the withdrawal of Walid Obadat, the, the ambassador to Tel Aviv. Uh, the government has refused to do so, and they're really not a factor. The Muslim Brotherhood is, is a crisis um, in Jordan. The Herak, this tribal opposition that appeared to be growing about a year and a half ago, has also been set back via a series of arrests, protest fatigue. Uh, they still come out and protest, and they cross the red lines. They call King Abdullah, for example, Ali Baba, as in Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves. Uh, but for the time being, they're not really a factor. We've also seen the, the retired generals, this group of retired East Banker officers, um, uh, complaining uh, most famously a few years ago about Queen Rania, about corruption of the regime. They're still around and kicking. They've been critical of U.S. military deployments to Jordan, calling it a black day in the kingdom. Um, they recently published an open, another open letter condemning the amendment of the Constitution, uh, describing the move as an attack on the Constitution and a challenge to the will of the people. But uh, this group um, is small and largely peripheral as well. Uh, last year, you also had another group in Jordan um, sign an open letter with 100 signatures or so uh, a letter to the king saying that American soldiers on Jordanian soil were a legitimate target. Um, but nothing has come of this, uh, of these protests or of the opposition. Uh, as Faisal mentioned, you have this sort of paradox in Jordan where the regional instability has somehow stabilized the kingdom. Jordanians, by and large, look to Syria, they look to Egypt, and now to Iraq, and they say, we don't want that. And so they're not coming out in sufficient numbers to cause a problem. But the real security problem, in my view, is the Al-Qaeda affiliate Jibhat al-Nusra and Daesh, the so-called Islamic State. Uh, Jordan is a leading supplier of foreign fighters in Syria, and now perhaps Iraq. We don't have the figures on that yet. Um, economically disadvantaged areas in Jordan, like Mons, Zarqa, or Saifa, are prime recruiting areas for Islamic militants. And even before 2011, for those of you who had traveled to Jordan, you could see that there was a trend, both regionally and in Jordan specifically, towards Salafism. The kingdom wasn't immune to this. And every day you can read in the Jordanian press about security incidents, violence, road closing, tire burnings, um, shootings. 
Um, some say it's because of uh, being exacerbated by a heavy-handed security response, sending in the gendarme, um, uh, especially in Mon. I think this is, is the case. And the citizens in these areas are armed. Um, I was in the tribal town of uh, Amman a few months back and met with a bunch of, uh, of Jebet the Nusra supporters, fighters and, uh, and others. The mosque, the main mosque uh, in Amman was, was covered with, with banners of, of, uh, of martyrs who died in fighting uh, the Assad regime in, uh, in Syria. Uh, and members of ISIS, we should remember, um, well, you know, ISIS is not hugely popular in Mon. Uh, two weeks later, after I left uh, Mon, in any event, uh, they had this well-publicized pro-ISIS demonstration there, uh, where they're holding signs saying Mon is, uh, is Jordan's Fallujah. Uh, but, uh, you know, ISIS, even at this protest, there were only 40 or 50 folks out there um, at the protest. But they have said, and they've been, you can watch YouTube videos of Jordanians in Iraq burning their passports and saying that they want to slaughter the king of Jordan. Now, with so many Jordanian fighters crossing the border and with the economic situation so crying, I, I think there's reason for concern. Now, ISIS isn't going to pull a Mosul, right? The, the, Iraq, the Jordanian armed forces is disciplined, it's hom homogenous, it's loyal, it's committed, and it's well-armed. They have F-16s with Hellfire missiles. They've already done cross-border operations attacking ISIS positions in Iraq, right? They've uh, augmented their border security, both uh, on the Syrian border and now on the Iraqi border. Uh, but my concern, uh, and by the way, they spend, Jordan spends some 13% of his budget on security between the Mukhabarat and the military. So they're in fine shape. Uh, that said, um, you know, while I don't think that there's going to be a problem on the borders, per se, or a frontal offensive, um, individuals, some individuals, no doubt, either already in Jordan, uh, and certainly the ideology is going to traverse the border, and it's going to gain a foothold in some quarters of the kingdom. I mean, while this is far from proof, you know, just this week there was a martyr's wedding in Baqa, in the Palestinian refugee camp in Jordan, for a member of ISIS. Uh, so this is happening. This is stretches beyond Mon. This is not isolated. Uh, but it's happening in areas of the kingdom, and we're seeing it start to take hold, and I suspect that the more success... ISIS has on the ground in Iraq, we're going to be seeing more of it. That said, at the end of the day, I, I agree with the, with the king's assessment. I think you know, the economy is the key here. Um, and unfortunately, notwithstanding what appears to be a significant find of oil shale in the eastern desert of, uh, of Jordan, I don't think Jordan's economic problems are going to be solved anytime soon. So the longer the conflict persists in Syria and Iraq, the bigger th the threat will be over time uh, to stability in the kingdom. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. That's great, David. Thanks very much. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, of course, inevitable that whenever people gather to discuss the Middle East these days, ISIS is going to be, uh, if, uh, if not the main issue, certainly one of them. So I can see that that is one thing we're going to come back to. Before, before we do that, though, uh, David, I'm going to ask you, because we, we were talking about the economy, I guess I'm curious <clears throat> uh, for all of the criticism that the Obama administration's uh, Middle East policy has gotten, my understanding is that they've been uh, they've been good with Jordan. They recognize Jordan as a strategic partner, um, and they understand the economy. Uh, the economy is a 
uh, a, a, a daunting problem for, for them. If, if you can uh, describe it all, what um, what the administration's involvement and, and aid to Jordan has looked like. And then, I mean, if, if either Salama or, or Faisal, you'd want to talk about that too, we can. But I, I thought we could swing back around to ISIS as well. Sure. Uh, thanks. thanks, David. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, Jordan is uh, a, a, a bipartisan issue. There aren't bipartisan foreign policy issues these days. Um, Jordan is one. It goes back, you know, I, I was the, the Levant director in the Pentagon responsible for Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, um, from 2002 to 2006. And, uh, you know, there, there was never, you know, we had a divided administration, right? Well known. I was in the Department of Defense. The defense didn't get along with state, et cetera. One thing we could agree on was Jordan. Um, and uh, I think that's the same today, both um, in support in the administration and also in Congress. And, uh, uh, you know, Jordan gets a lot of money. Before uh, 2011, Jordan had a population of something like 6.3 million people. It's up to perhaps 9 million now, right? But um, they get a lot of money. They got uh, $300 million in FMF, foreign military financing, in 2013. They got $360 million in economic support funds. They got another $200 million or so in uh, cash uh, support. Um, they've got uh, $2 billion, $2.something billion worth of loan guarantees uh, that we paid for this year and that we're, we're funding. And they got $140 million from the administration for, uh, for refugees. Um, so that's well over a billion dollars. And, and the two, 2014 request is actually for uh, $700 million in economic support funds. So, uh, you know, I, I think the administration, at least on this issue, is doing the right mm. thing. Okay, great. Um, if, if, uh, would either of you like to address that? I mean, or we can uh, – um, Salama, do you have anything to say about U.S. involvement with, uh, yeah, with that man? I think, you know, um, to address the U.S. policy uh, towards Jordan, I, I agree with, uh, with David on um, the fact that this is, uh, you know, a policy that, um, you know, is very much supported in, in the United States, public opinion in general, and it is crucial in a sense that uh, Jordan does uh, feel vulnerable because of the economic situation, the influx of – the massive influx of mm -hmm. refugees. Scarce water resources is a very, very important <coughs> issue. Uh, it was already – Jordan was the fourth uh, poorest country in water resources. Now it's the third worst uh, poorest country in, in the world. And I think that is, this is a matter that is only likely to get worse um, in the coming uh, years. Uh, the, the point that I would like to raise is that, you know, contrary to, you know, public perception in the region that the Obama administration has failed uh, – you know, to carry out an effective policy. I think that, you know, the, uh, the attitude of the Obama administration towards uh, Iraq, the Iraqi government and the Maliki government was very wise, which is deploying troops and forces but not using them until uh, Maliki stepped down and mm. allowed, uh, you know, for the designation of a new prime minister to uh, form a government. Uh, we are yet to see if he's going to succeed, uh, Haider uh, Abadi, if he's going to succeed in forming a national unity government in Iraq, that would uh, go a long way towards weakening, you know, forces like ISIS and other extremists. As I said, it's always been reaction to aggressive Iranian policies in the region that uh, governments failed to address and, uh, you know, and militant groups uh, moved in to fill the vacuum. Uh, we've seen that happen in Syria. We've seen that in, in Lebanon, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hezbollah's policies in Lebanon, holding the mm -hmm. country hostage. 
and uh, uh, you know it is only likely to you know one extremism on one one side is going to bring about extremism on the other side so the what's happening in iraq watching iraq now is very important uh, watching to see if iran actually changes policies vis-a-vis -vis backing us the assad regime and and uh, con continuing to support hezbollah's policies mm. you know dominating iran in that uh, in that manner that can only feed extremism in the region we have to wait and see but i think we cannot deal with the uh, isis challenge uh, without addressing the political uh, you know uh, under forces that are very uh, very much playing into feeding extremism across the board and uh, you, you you think that's largely about the iranians it's the, the iranian sectarian project or whatever they're I what mean, do you think the underlying I mean, you know we had extremist islamists before we had al-qaeda <coughs> but we never saw that you know such extremist uh, violent uh, Islamic groups like ISIS become acceptable somehow to a large segments of the population. And the reason is, in my view, is of Iran's policies in the region. We did not have, you know, three years ago, we did not have uh, Jabhat al-Nusra or, uh, or ISIS. Uh, but, you know, after, you know, you kill 200,000 uh, people in, in, in Syria, mm. mostly civilians, you are going to yes. get... Yeah, and they're mostly Sunnis, then, you know, you're going to get a reaction, mm. and the reaction has been uh, ISIS. And because of the Maliki's government, again, we look here, the Iran factor is, is uh, present in, in Iraq and in Lebanon and in Syria. And so we cannot just look at the phenomenon of, of ISIS and say we have to deal with that challenge. We have to deal with the forces that brought about ISIS, primarily Iranian policies that want to dominate mm. the region to serve its own, uh, you know, uh, empire dreams or whatever and uh, basically to um, try to reverse these policies uh, otherwise we're going to continue to run in in in, in circles uh, you know you cannot deal with the phenomena without dealing with the root causes so i think that you know jordan is lucky in the sense that it does not have this internal problem shiite uh, versus sunni and as such jordan positioned itself early on on the right side uh, we all probably recall over Ten years ago, when the king called, uh, you know, Iran's ambitions as the Shiite crescent, and uh, you know, it was an early warning, if you like. And here we see that this crescent uh, basically consolidated itself over the last two years. The departure of U.S. Uh, uh, military from Iraq has helped Iran expand its influence further in the country. And and finally, you know, the uh, the uh, the backing, the Iranian backing of the murderous regime in Syria. Uh, all these factors have created this instability and created these uh, all types of violent groups uh, trying to ch you know face that Iranian challenge uh, in the region uh, so it, it is naive to think that you know we can deal with the uh, ISIS uh, challenge without dealing with again uh, the forces that brought about uh, that kind of reaction yeah thanks Salama. I, I, I do want to come back to Iran again and I want to uh, in a second ask of their actual um, if, if the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan is actually in the Iranians' crosshairs but, um, and, and how, they would, how they would actually go after Jordan in different ways. But right now, Faisal, I want to ask you, I want to come back to ISIS. Um, look, are, I mean, are we, are we overstating the ISIS threat to Jordan? Not generally, but to Jordan. After all, this is a, this is a regime that fought off the PLO successfully. Uh, and there's, it's not clear that ISIS is a uh, is a better organized outside of Iraq, former Iraqi regime people 
it's not entirely clear that ISIS is a more competent, uh, a much more competent military organization. So if the Hashemites, uh, if they defeated the PLO, why, why does ISIS represent a, a threat of a different order? Or is the regime different? Or has the context of the, of the Levant changed? So that's why this is a, a, bigger, a, a bigger issue. Uh, let me start. Uh, the, uh, the issue that emerged in the 60s and 70s with the PLO was one in which this group had become embedded within Jordan uh, and posed a domestic internal challenge to the existence of the regime. Uh, as it were, I don't think they were very capable militarily. And as somebody watching ISIS for the past couple of years, I do think ISIS is a qualitatively mm. different okay. different sort of fighting force. Uh, it's much more creative, uh, much more decentralized, uh, and much less likely to take on its superior army head on, and it's not based in Jordan anyway. So it's not exposed in the same way that uh, that Jordan is. As is right now, I don't want to overstate the threat. Uh, ISIS is nowhere geographically near Jordan anyway in Syria. It is in, in Iraq, but it has uh, bigger fish to fry, at least for now. Uh, rather, I'm seeing this as a compelling and resonating challenge to sort of post-Ottoman Middle East order. Uh, it's an answer to the question of, it's one answer, and a particularly alarming one, to the question of how are we going to organize these societies, what grounds politically and socially. ISIS has one of the answers, and there are enough people at the global yeah. level, I'm not saying, who are, who are going right. to find it an attractive and compelling one. Well, I, actually, that, that, that's interesting. Oh, I was going to say, um, sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted you, but I did want to say something I was thinking about before when you were, when you were talking about this. Look, does, the, um, does ISIS threaten in some ways the legitimacy of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, right? If it's organized, as you said before, in terms of a monarchy and it is uh, recognized as legitimate, does ISIS, a, a new sort of organization, as you're talking about the post-Ottoman order of the region, is there a threat to legitimacy in that way because the model is different and perhaps more appealing? Absolutely, yes. And I think that's, that is really the threat. Uh-huh. Uh, at the moment now, it's kind of a bit ridiculous because you know, we have this guy, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, showing up from time to time in Mosul and giving a speech, and then you have these guys dressed in you know rags and riding horses and raqqa. It's difficult to take it seriously. Uh, but you know, you are as to the degree that you are stronger than your proximate opponents, then you're strong. Right. And uh, as I see it, United States policy has not shifted to one of destroying the group or rolling it right. back, shifted to a containment strategy. I think this is a containment strategy is something ISIS can live with as long as it's able to secure its lines of communications and build its caliphate or state. Uh, The means to the end of confronting groups like Jordan is, I mean, there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go. Uh, But they're not doing too badly, given the circumstances. Uh, Can they, are they capable of destroying the uh, Jordanian army? No, no, absolutely not. And I don't think they have any intention of doing that. Right, but can you say, like, how it does threaten the legitimacy of, I mean, what, there's a kid, a, a, a 17-year-old kid in, uh, somewhere in London who can't get a job, and he's thinking, that's, that's, what's really appealing to me is 
these guys who are riding around on horses and raka. This is what, this is how I see. How, how does this, you know what I'm saying? Like, what is the, how does it work? Why is this a threat? I guess that would depend on the number of people in Jordan uh, who are so disillusioned with the current answer of the monarchy uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood, which, as David said, is becoming irrelevant, uh, that they would be w- willing to contemplate something like this. The fact that we're in the middle of a youth bulge in the Middle East, the fact that we have a severe economic problem affecting all these countries, uh, is not encouraging. Uh, the fact that there is now another option, Caldenas, particularly in light of Iran's Iran's policies right. vis-a-vis the Sunnis, but also but also going beyond that, uh, beyond the geopolitics, it's the Arab states that have treated their right. populations this way. We don't really need Iran to, to make the case for us. We've done it to ourselves. And uh, in, in Iraq, we've done it. In uh, Syria, we've done it. What Iran is trying to do now is shore up what they've built over the past decade and prevent it from collapsing. Uh, this is it's reactive, not something that, uh, that they're enthusiastic about. But they're doing what, as they see what they have to do because they're locked in this inevitable struggle with the region's Sunnis. But, you know, to, to backtrack a bit, as long as the answer to how we want to organize these societies doesn't offer economic potential, mm-hmm. political dignity, uh, social mobility, and some sort of, ans- some sort of answer mm-hmm. to these questions of modernity that we have not been able to answer, uh, I think the ISIS, if indeed mm-hmm. it actually has concrete successes, I mean, if they're going to you know, stay in Idlib province and villages and say what they want to say, that's fine. They can do that. Right. Nobody cares. <laughs> but uh, if they control Mosul, if they control Raqqa, if they start making progress in Aleppo now, in Syria, which they may well do, then, you know, nothing succeeds like success. And uh, especially if you're in these areas that are disenfranchised, poor, sort of feeling remote from the central governments in places like Amman and Baghdad, even if you're not an enthusiastic fanatic supporter, you're going to do a rational calculation of your interests. What is your interest? This group seems to be winning, then I can oppose it by myself without much help from, you know, uh, the Western the Western allies or the Gulf governments, which in any case are very bad at this sort of thing. Uh, I can oppose it and die, or uh, or I can get on board with this mm. and see where it goes. And particularly the fact that a new generation is growing up. I mean, if you go into Syria and Iraq and you look at you know the areas they control, you always see that. The older generation is sort of a bit wary towards them because, you know, they know better and right. they, they, you know, it's not going to offer them anything, uh, anything good in the long run. But there is a new generation of people who are growing up without any education, without any economic prospects, in a total vacuum. Uh, and mm. ISIS is very much focused on this generation. And what is now something sort of comic and ridiculous, fast forward a bit, right. and it becomes quite serious. So, uh, mm. yeah, you know, not invincible, but, uh, but a problem. Right. David, um, who – so what, what is the profile before uh, you talked about the number of Jordanian fighters that have signed on with ISIS and with, uh, with Nusra? And Faisal was just talking about what this looks like to younger people. So what's the profile of the Jordanian who says – the Jordanian kid, adolescent, 25-year-old who says this is – ridiculous what my life here in Zarqa or wherever is outrageous I'm going to go sign on with these guys who seem like they've got a winning hand what do these guys look like Um, I don't know if I can generalize I mean typically we think of people that are living in these 
tribal areas, although there are many uh, Jordanians of Palestinian origin who are active in Jebel the Nusra in Syria, um, uh, who are uh, either disenfranchised, have no job prospects, et cetera. And in areas like Man, for example, the employment, unemployment is, is very high. But that's not always the case. I'm, I'm looking at Adam Garfinkel back there. I published an article um, in, American, uh, in the American Interest um, a couple, I don't know, a couple months ago talking about um, uh, you know, one of these guys that I met in, in Mon who um, was telling me about his brother who had just disappeared uh, a month before uh, to go up and, and fight in Jebat the Nusra. And uh, you know, he called home on a cell phone to tell his folks that he was up there. Um, this guy had a good job. He's working in the phosphate industry. He was a you know a young guy at you know a higher an advanced degree. Um, he owned an apartment. All the type of type of frustrations that we associate with Islamic militancy. You know, not being able to get married, not having employment process. That, that it doesn't you know none of those boxes are checked in this case. Um, so I think that uh, you know there is. Um, in Jordan, like everywhere else across the region, a real sectarian identification with, you know, the Iranian-backed, you know, uh, Assad regime uh, slaughtering Sunni Muslims, and this is, you know, incensing them and, and and a higher calling for them. And so I asked this guy, this parenthetically, I asked this guy, you know, what his parents thought of his brother going uh, to fight in Syria, and they said, you know, God willing, he'll return a martyr. Mm. Salama, were you going to, I mean, because this actually brings it right back around to what you were talking, uh, you know, with the Iranian. I mean, is it really the Iranians that have, uh, I, I sensed Faisal, you know, was also talking about the, what the Arab governments have done. Is it the Iranians who have really raised the temperature so much on sectarianism? They've really sort of forced the rest of the region into sectarian issues? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, we've seen uh, the Iranian rule, uh, you know, since 2003, since the toppling of the Saddam Hussein regime. Uh, the Iranians have moved in to build influence in, in the country. And they have been successful and uh, unfortunately aided by the fact that Sunni Muslim states, uh, or uh, predominantly Sunni Muslim states in the region, um, try to undermine the, uh, the rise of uh, Shiites into power, the Shiite majority in Iraq into power. Mm -hmm. And they try to basically sabotage it in, in many ways, including backing uh, extremist groups uh, in Iraq. So uh, it, it became this, that set the scene for the, you know, you know, overarching regional confrontation that continues this, to this very day. And with the, you know, with, the, with the Arab Spring coming and the people rising in, in Syria, you know, Iran putting its weight behind the, the Assad regime murdering his own people is a major factor in, in the rise of extremism throughout the region. Uh, people, you know, watch this. They see, you know, how Assad is bombing his, his uh, you know, civilian mm. population destroying the buildings on their heads. They, they watch it on television. Mm. The difference between, you know, 2014 or, you know, this decade and, and 1982 when Assad, you know, murdered 20 to 30,000 of his own people is that we don't have a single photo of that massacre mm -hmm. that took place. Now, anything that happens is, is transferred immediately to people's, you know, television screens or... Can I ask, what, 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 um, what... I was just going to say, what is, what is Jordan's role then? If we're talking about a regional uh, conflagration that the Iranians have helped stoke. I think, uh, I what, think, what, know, what does Jordan do? Does it try to Iran's, stay out of the way? Or Iran's what? leverage in Jordan is very minimal. Okay. This is for the obvious yeah. reasons. And, uh, you know, uh, the, but the, the, 
the, the worry, my worry on Jordan is that not the external uh, uh, challenge. External challenges are, I think, limited because of the, you know, all the factors that we've heard, mm. you know, earlier today. But I'm, I'm worried about the internal front, basically, uh, you know, facing a major challenge in the, in the coming years because of the, uh, you know, failure of the governments to bring about, you know, bring in a more inclusive, uh, you know, parliament and, and government. And I think the biggest mistake was pushing the Muslim Brotherhood, and here I disagree that it's irrelevant, uh, pushing the Muslim Brotherhood out and forcing, pushing them towards boycotting the election, the two last uh, uh, elections, parliamentary and, and municipal, because you know the Muslim Brotherhood has more following in Jordan, obviously, than uh, people like ISIS. But when these people are neutralized, they're not represented, they're not in mm. parliament, and they're not in the government, you know, young followers of the Muslim Brotherhood find it, you know, appealing for them to gravitate towards more extremist elements who are more effective than their moderate, quote-unquote, moderate yeah. Muslim Brotherhood leadership. So I think, you know, it is extremely dangerous for Jordan not to try to go and follow the Egyptian model of basically uh, delegitimizing and, and uh, isolating the Muslim Brotherhood because that means you are going to create a generation of young, desperate, uh, Islamists who will go for the op the option that actually did something in the region rather than the Muslim Brotherhood that mm. turned out to be complete failure. And I got shut out by the. So, so okay. I think Jordan needs to, you know, carry out the the you know pledges of reform uh, that have been has suffered a setback because of regional violence, and I think Jordan should include bring in the Muslim Brotherhood. Should not, you know, be tempted to do, you know, what the Egyptian did and what what the Gulf Arab yeah. states are trying to push Jordan to do is to completely uh, de uh, to um, turn the Muslim Brotherhood into mm -hmm. an illegal organization that would push it underground, and then it becomes much more difficult yeah. to deal with uh, with the challenge. So uh, I think, you know, these two factors: the failure of the government to to have, yeah. you know, to hold elections that are acceptable to, let's say, a majority of the population where the parliament becomes a rubber stamp because, you know, the parliament hasn't rejected a single law sent by the government in the last, you know, few years. Mm. And even with the prime minister saying that there, there will be no rise in, in prices of fuel or anything else uh, without going back to parliament, and then, you know, you know, parliament goes and, you know, votes against even parliament which is void of opposition because the opposition parties boycotted. Uh, you find that the you know government goes ahead with the decisions of rising raising prices, with parliament bec becoming a rubber stamp. I think this is dangerous mm. because combining you know lack of proper uh, representation in parliament and in the government with a, a, a very very difficult uh, economic challenge is uh, is uh, basically combustible. And I think that you know Jordan should preemptively move towards a more inclusive government in order to uh, uh, minimize the threats that will come eventually from the uh, continuing economic crisis, the, the refugee uh, uh, problem, as well as any possible you know, uh, conflagration in the region that could go beyond the borders. Mm. David, I think that you, uh, you, you wanted to note something. Yeah, uh, just two things. One is uh, certainly the government has been uh, hesitant to uh, pursue what, uh, what we would consider to be uh, real electoral reform. Um, but we have to lay some of the blame for uh, what's happened to the Muslim Brotherhood on the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, they are internally split uh, with one, uh, one half, uh, give or take, 
of the organization essentially um, allying themselves with Hamas, <coughs> uh, with Zaki Badr Shaid, Hamam Saeed, um, and peripheralizing the old you know, East Banker elite of the organization. So they have their own problems. They also have um, other splits, including this thing called the Zamzam Initiative uh, that may or may not have some relationship to the government. But I wanted to, um, so they have their own, uh, their, own, their own selves to blame in some regard. But I want to get back to the issue of Jordan's role. Um, oh, okay, great. Uh, you know, in 2011, uh, the king, uh, with some hesitancy, went forward and said that, uh, that Assad should step down. Um, and he now appears to be cooperating um, with the U.S. funding uh, the program to arm the moderate vetted Syrian opposition, su such as the funding and such as the program is. Um, but uh, there is a double-edged sword here for the king, um, because uh, you know the longer the conflict goes on, the the, uh, the more refugees the, the kingdom absorbs, uh, the more radicalized the population becomes. And it will take you know, a long time for Assad to be toppled, if he ever is toppled. Um, and what comes next may not necessarily be any more appealing for Jordan. Um, that said, to go a step further, you know, if the king um, did more to help the opposition, the moderate opposition, uh, Syria has ways of attacking Jordan, quietly or mm -hmm. in the past done so overtly. Um, armed uh, terrorist organizations enabled Al-Qaeda to train, uh, set up operations in Syria across the border. And uh, 2002, for example, the killing of the American diplomat Lawrence Foley in, in Jordan. This was engineered in Syria. The Jayousi cell in 2004 engineered in <coughs> Syria. Uh, they planned to uh, launch a chemical weapon in Amman and kill 70,000 people. This was all done in Syria, and we know that. So uh, in this case, um, you know, if Jordan did more to help the hasten the demise of the Assad regime, Assad could, for example, destroy the power plants in the south near Dara. And this could cause, uh, with no water and no electricity, it could cause, you know, a million more Syrians to enter the kingdom. So, uh, you know, this is, this is not a, an, an even some gain. All right, no, I mean, what, I mean when, <laughs> when I said what should the Jordanians do, should they just keep their heads down? And <clears throat> until this passes, um, or what, you know, are, are there active, active things they can do? And, of course, I don't think that the administration is pushing them out there to walk the point on this, and nor, nor, nor do I think they should. I, I want to ask one, one very technical question. If I saw something you mentioned before, or from my perspective, it's very technical. Why is it that, um, why is it that the Turkish border with Syria seems so porous, that there's fighters crossing in all the time. And why is it on the Jordanian, I mean, is it just uh, the Jordanian uh, border police? Is it Jordanian security services? Why, you know, why is Jordan, especially with the number of Jordanian fighters who are with ISIS and with Jabhat Nusra, why is Jordan different? I mean, I think we know why Lebanon is, why Lebanon, why that border has its, has its issues, but why is Jordan so relatively safe? Uh, yeah, it's uh, a number of the reasons are technical and logistical. Uh, partly, it's sheer length of of the border. Uh, the degree of commitment of the Turkish government to policing it uh, was 
was improved, but right. was for I, certain. I, I, I didn't mean. To, I, I mean, it's fine if we do it. I didn't mean to, to, to turn this to get you know to get the uh, to go after the Turks. It's fine. No, but I'm like, I, but also I want to know like what if, the, if it's partly that the Jordanians are doing something right as well as other other people doing something not right on their borders. No, no fair. Uh, well, it's uh, again uh, link their intelligence collection effort, their understanding yeah. of the rebel landscape over the border, who they work with, who they don't, who is an enemy, who isn't, technology yeah. uh, as well. Uh, the Jordanians have a high-tech and are continuing to develop mm. border, border surveillance and security uh, infrastructure. But I think the most, really the most important thing is in neither Turkey's nor Jordan's hands, which is that the, the landscape, the, the sort of political and social and military landscape in northern Syria so fragmented and shifts right. so frequently, and the constellation of forces and who is with Jabhat al-Nusra and who is working with them and who is working against them and the rebranding of the rebel groups and the coalitions, mm. right, is, uh, the intelligence effort required and the outreach effort required to keep track of all this and work within it, especially if you're playing a host role to the Syrian mm. insurgency and helping them in some cases as the Turkish government, it's a real, real challenge. Um, then you have the factor of the Gulf states and their outreach to these rebel groups in the north. I mean, you know, funding a group one day, the next day, deciding that, you know, Prince so-and-so doesn't like, you know, Alush <laughs> anymore, so we're done. And then it moves to another, another guy and, uh, and another group. It's just the, nat- it's the nature of what's happening across the border, I think, uh, more, than, more than anything else. And the Jordanians okay. have been relatively right. lucky. Very in interesting. David, did you want to? Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, you know, I agree with both of what Faisal says, although I think he's a little generous to Ankara. I mean, I think that... You know, oh, okay, go ahead. Go, yeah, let him have it. The administration has been you know, working with, with Qatar and uh, indiscriminate in the people that it funds and allows to move across its territory. If you talk to people that have been to Gaziantep or you know, the airport flying to the, the Turkish border with, with Syria, let's say the border towns in Turkey re- resemble Bashawar during the, the, the Mujahideen days. Um, you know, Turkey has a serious intelligence force. They have a serious military, and if they want to do something about it, they would do something. Uh, Faisal, did you want to? No, no, I don't uh, disagree. Okay. That, was, that was one of my points uh, until okay. you uh, until you don't. <laughs> no, no, but, right. but but you know, uh, it's it's also you know looking at their interests. Uh, I think they have realized that the ISIS issue is a real problem. Uh, but right. maybe maybe it's you know we're past the point where something can effectively be done to reverse it immediately without right. without doing something across the border in Syria itself. But I also think that the level of risk they're willing to take on is going to be limited by a their risk of a backlash, just just as Jordan has right. that risk, but not from the regime, right. but rather from from the rebel forces, right. uh, and uh, and be the fact that. They went all in in this conflict early on and then realized right. they were essentially on their own. Right. Uh, the political will to do something like this, absent a U.S., a robust mm. U.S. effort to take really responsibility for the overall campaign and to try to shape an outcome over the border that would be in Turkey's interest, right. it's difficult to realistically ask him to do it, should they do it? Of course. Right. But uh, look, actually, you, you, know, you, uh, you raise a very interesting point, and, and which is, you know, a, a lot, a lot of the way that we uh, that we frame this is, uh, well, I know that I frame it critically regarding the White House's policies, the idea of leading from behind, and especially on the Syrian conflict, 
and where the White House has not been anywhere on this. But the other side of looking at it is, yes, you're right, Erdogan went all in very quickly and wound up in a lot of trouble. And if you look at how, um, how uh, you know, the King of Jordan handled it, and as, 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 as one of you mentioned, they, they, it was very quietly, but finally came out against Bashar. So it does have to do a lot with how people run their own uh, run their own governments, manage their own regimes. Uh, I'm going to open it up for questions in a couple minutes. I just wanted to um, I wanted to ask about the some other aspects of the changing landscape of the region, and this I think touches on a whole number of points. Uh, t- touches on um, look if the region is being rearranged in different ways. If it's a you know post uh, post Ottoman Middle East in so- in some ways, what um, and it seems as though the Gulf states are reaching out to Israel. Will the Jordan, uh, Jordan-Israel relationship uh, become enhanced? Is this something that we'll see in five years go, wow, that's really surprising? I mean, we knew there was a very strong security cooperation and there had been military cooperation on these different things, but now that the Israelis, all of this natural gas is coming online and other things, this relationship is remarkably strong. Is that something that we're likely to see? Salama, do you want to offer... Uh, well, you know, assuming all things remain the same, but they don't. The, you know, the, the, what we've seen uh, of late, the, the latest blitzkrieg of Gaza, you know, really pushed the, uh, you know, the Jordan to a very, very uh, awkward situation. Can you describe that, actually? That would be interesting well, if you, you know, could with, with let us know nearly, what happened. Nearly half of Jordan's population of Palestinian origin, the intermarriage is Jordanian-Palestinian when they, you know, Again, people sit and watch these, you know, these dead babies taken out from underneath the rubble. You know, they're not going to enhance moderation among people, you know, refugee camps or just citizens, Jordanians and Jordanians of Palestinian origin. So, um, you know, the continuation of policies that basically uh, block any progress towards a a peaceful Palestinian-Israeli settlement. The uh, Netanyahu's government refusal to freeze settlements in the Palestinian territory. Uh, all these factors radicalize the population in Jordan because they see, they know that Jordan is cooperating with Israel on security matters. They would like to see Jordan taking, you know, a, a hostile uh, stance versus Israel, which would not serve Jordan's interest. But that's that's the sentiment of people. So when we have Gaza, and I don't know what's the, you know, logic behind it. I know the official, uh, you know, excuse for carrying out such an operation. But again, the Israelis should also realize that this is, you know, Affecting, you know, is contributing to radicalization throughout the region. You know, one would argue, but yeah, Hamas, Hamas is is lobbying these uh, missiles. Yes, but there must be a different way to deal with this without having to kill, you know, a couple of thousand civilians, including you know, children and and women. So, what I'm saying here, you know, Jordan's Jordan would like to cooperate with Israel, would like to see itself in a better position where. It can be, uh, you know, a player in the future settlement, Palestinian-Israeli settlement, but with the radicalization, not only of the Palestinian population in the West Bank and in Gaza, but also in Jordan, it it limits Jordan's ability to maneuver towards a more engaged role, if you like, uh, in the future. So, uh, you know, the Gulf states, you know, I think it echoes the same, you know, uh, voice in the Gulf states. (coughs) I would like to see, you know, I mean, for all practical reasons, Gulf states look at Israel as less of a problem, you know, uh, than, than Iran. 
because Iran has, you know, genuine, genuinely threatens their own stability and security because of all the factors we mentioned. You know, there is an Iranian hand in every single conflict in the region. And the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has become more limited in, strate in strategic importance for these countries than it was in the past. David, were you going to, did you want to yeah, add something? Say, you know, Tom's uh, right, the uh, strategic relationship is very strong. Um, the intelligence sharing uh, is a robust uh, relationship on that level, mill to mill. Um, but publicly, it's, you know, problematic, um, in large part because it's unpopular. Um, there are people in Jordan um, who don't even want Israel's water, right? This is a country that is water poor, that, you know, during the summer months, the dry months, they get brackish water delivered, you know, once a week or, or you know, not frequently. Um, and there are some who say, no, we don't even want, you know, Israel to provide us with additional water that, that, that they don't have to. Um, but, you know, stranger things have happened. We saw this year that, uh, that two Jordanian companies, in, in part owned by the Jordanian government, uh, signed a deal, I think it was worth um, $500 million, to purchase Israeli natural gas, um, and there was no revolution. Um, you know, even the, I mean, hell, look at Egypt, right? Egypt is now going to be getting I Israeli natural gas. Um, so I, I think that stranger things have happened. You also saw, I think, on the, on the Jordanian side, um, to sort of uh, maybe offset this, you saw an announcement that by 2017, uh, the kingdom would be buying uh, Palestinian natural gas off, uh, from Gaza. Okay, yeah. Faisal, did you want to? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, I agree with what Dave is saying. I think, uh, you know, we don't want to overstate the sort of ideational motive for going against the regime. So, you know, hating their Israel policy doesn't mean they're going to go and, uh, and rise up mm. against uh, the Jordanian monarchy. It depends what their lives are like in Jordan at the end of the day. But it does point to something I wanted to add uh, to add to the Iran Shia uh -huh. part of the narrative. The that is certainly part of it, and I mentioned it early on as one of the driving forces for ISIS, as a sort of Sunni Shia sectarian element of the conflict. But I would add also that regimes like uh, King, uh, like the Hashemite monarchy and uh, the Gulf monarchies, Turkish, even the Turkish government. Well, the Islamist Turkish government. I mean, these are all enemies to ISIS. These are, uh, right. this isn't, you know, there is no hierarchy of enemies. They're all the same. And in fact, these Sunni governments that claim to be Muslims, I mean, th these are to ISIS uh, and Jabhat Nusra, these are the, the munafiqun, the, the, the hypocrites. They're not, they're not really Muslims, and therefore they're just like the Shia and just like, uh, it's like everybody else. Uh, they're, they're enemies. So, I wouldn't say that not being part of the Iran Shia constellation exempts you, if you will, from from the list of enemies, the long list of enemies. Of who ISIS considers. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I'm going to open it up for questions right now. Um, if you can hold on until I think that we have, don't we have a microphone somewhere? Oh, we have a microphone. If you can just wait, Amal, if you would go first, if you could stand and identify yourself, and he's going to hand you the microphone. Amal Mudalali with the Wilson Center. I Can you speak questions. up a little bit? Yes. Thanks, Amal. Um, I have two questions. Uh, the first one is goes back to your question, important question about legitimacy and the threat uh -huh. to the uh, to the monarchy. Uh, could you please, any of you, explain 
where does the threat come from? That because this is very important to the question of legitimacy. Does it come, I mean, the, the threat of ISIS and the uh, popularity of ISIS uh, in Jordan, does it come from e uh, within East Jordanians or the Palestinians? Because this is very important. Because if it's only the mm. king's base, if it's in the queen's base, that's a question of qu threat to legitimacy. If it's from the Palestinians and the others, I think there'll be a less of a threat. The other thing, uh, question is concerning to the uh, what Faisal was talking about, uh, ISIS, and he said they might be coming closer to Nusra, um, might be coming closer to ISIS. Uh, Faisal, don't you think this is the contrary now? I mean, if you look about, about what's happened in the last two weeks, uh, there's an indication that uh, Jabhat al-Nusra is trying to distance itself from ISIS because they see that it's becoming it's becoming a burden on them, it's becoming a problem, whether it's in Arsal or uh, if you talk to Syrians who just come back, uh, the Syrians now see Jabhat al-Nusra as more Syrian and the Daesh mm. as, as an outsiders and they're becoming a threat to them, that they're Okay. Uh, existential threat to them. Habab, okay, yeah, Habab, uh, uh, Faisal, if you want to start with the last question. Thank you. And then Salama, actually, I'm going to ask you to, yeah. uh, if you could take uh, Amal's first question. But let's start off with uh, back into ISIS. So, sure. yeah. Why not? Uh, no, you're, you're, you're right. The official position of the organization, since dramatic gains in uh, Mosul and, and, the, and in general in the context of all the momentum ISIS has now, Yes, it has been to distance themselves. Uh, I should have been more specific. Persons, factions of Nusra and fighters of Nusra are defecting. Uh, now, to what, whether that tips the balance and sort of collapses Jabhat al-Nusra as a cohesive organization, not that they're completely cohesive, I don't know. Uh, I think that would depend on the local situations in across the various geographies of the Syrian conflict. The Syrian conflict is not you know, a front line where groups decide how they're going to act in general as a general policy. Maybe even ISIS doesn't do that. And Jabhat Nusra certainly doesn't do it. Jabhat Nusra's relations with ISIS in Qalamun and outside Damascus are different than they are in Aleppo, or different than they are in Idlib, different than they are in Raqqa and Deir al-Zul. So I really want to emphasize the local nature of these, comp these many wars in Syria. Each brigade, group, division commander has a policy. Now, that's in, that is in, always exists in, exists in tension with the Al-Qaeda central ideology that trickles down to Jabhat al-Nusra. But at the end of the day, it's up to the people of Jabhat al-Nusra to decide what sort of ideology they want and what sort of relationship they want with ISIS. And that will be a combination of ideology, a combination of, I think, rational bets and calculation about who has the money and who's winning. Thanks, Faisal. Salam, if you want to tackle yeah, Amal's uh, first question. Amal's question, yeah, on legitimacy. I, I don't think that Jordan is, is now suffering a, a problem of legitimacy, per se. I mean, you do have, you know, um, uh, recognition among most Jordanians uh, that, you know, there is no better alternative to the monarchy. And that's why... The protests that we are witnessing now and the Hirak that David mentioned, which is predominantly East Banker, is basically is more about, I think in my view, blackmailing the regime for economic benefits rather than for political reform that could probably not really empower them in the sense uh, that uh, you know, you know, this Jordanian-Palestinian issue is is a, is is at play. So. The reason why we don't have uh, an, an uprising in the Palestinian refugee camps, apart from protests over the Gaza uh, uh, assault by, by Israel, is that you know, most Jordanians of Palestinian origin 
uh, they might not be very happy with their, their government and the way things are run and with the economic situation, etc. But then again, they're smart enough to understand that, again, they're looking you know, to the east and see what's happening in Iraq and they look to the north in, in, and then across the river in, in, in the West Bank and they know that they're better off in Jordan under the current regime uh, rather than go for the, the unknown, uh, which is very dangerous. They've seen how, you know, the Palestinians have always, you know, suffered uh, in, uh, on the regional level because of, you know, radical uh, elements. So this is for the Jordanians of Palestinian origin. Again, it's dangerous to generalize, but this is over, generally this is the, the, the general, you know, uh, sense, uh, feelings among Jordanians of Palestinian origin. The East Bank Jordanians, as I said, the, it is an economic, uh, you know, protest rather than, you know, nobody is kind of carrying, you know, the Iranian flag or any other flag in the streets of Amman uh, wanting to overthrow the, the monarchy. Uh, and nobody is presenting themselves as an alternative to the monarchy. It does not mean that there isn't dissent. And that's why I said, you know, my opinion is that the government should move fast to bring in opposition parties into parliament and into the government so as not to create a situation where an external uh, forces can actually uh, capitalize on, on the disenchantment in, in the population and the economic crisis to basically mobilize people you know, uh, and threaten the stability uh, of Jordan. Thanks, Anand. Uh, David, you wanted to throw your hat in there. Whether the threat is East Bank or West Banker. Um, you know, I had been, over the past couple of years, looking um, and working under the sort of maybe assumption based on anecdotal, you know, press reporting, et cetera, and, and, and visits to Jordan, uh, that, uh, that there was heavier Salafi support, Salafi jihadi support among the tribal East Banker. Um, and that was just purely because there were more reports of uh, martyrs, you know, weddings um, in, um, in tribal areas. Um, but you can't really generalize because there are an awful lot of these burials. Like I mentioned you know, last week in, in Baqa in the Palestinian refugee camp, you had, uh, I think it was in Wihdat last year, you had um, a, uh, a Salafi group implement the Hadood. They executed somebody for violating, they said he was a murtad or something, a, uh, um, an apostate. Um, so, and they executed, it was, very, you know, it was in the Jordanian press. So this is happening. Um, you know, all over the place. So I think that it is equal opportunity. Um, can you, uh, is, well, this um, woman right here in the third row, can you just hold on and, yeah, microphone down here. Yeah, if you can bring up the microphone, either one of them, thanks. And if you can, again, just stand and identify yourself and. I tend to have a lap full of things, but. Uh, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> Leandra Bernstein, reporter with RIA Novosti. Uh, in American officials often talk about a regional solution to deal with the threat of ISIS, but the lack of definition of what that regional solution would be is vague to the point of almost almost being meaningless in in my view. Uh, so I'd like to know first what what a "Quote unquote regional solution to the threat of ISIS would look like, and then with the caveat that we are in a post-Ottoman Middle East, and what a lot of uh, Western analysts have also called a, a post-nation-state world. So how you how you get regional allies in an era 
I'm, 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 I'm quite confident that all three of our panelists have a solution to the ISIS question, and that they, and they already came in with them, prepared to deliver them, in less than 30 seconds apiece. Um, no, but I, I am actually going to ask all of you to, to give an answer, and um, if you can keep it short, because I have another, I want to uh, at least try to get two more questions in after. So why don't we start down here? I, I, uh, Faisal, why don't you give your solution to how, how we get rid of ISIS, and... Yeah, easy. Um, well, you have to bring in everyone in the region. Remember, it's a regional solution. Right, right. Okay, okay. no, so, I'll, I'll uh, a very short version. <laughs> yes, of course, regional actors have a role to play, financially, logistically, geographically, politically, and diplomatically. Any regional solution is meaningless if it doesn't fit or flow into or support a local solution in the areas where ISIS has taken root. That means finding a way to channel Sunni Arab grievances in Iraq and Syria into, politi into political wars. That requires fundamental changes in the political contract in both of mm. these countries that go beyond removing Maliki, although he's probably one of the worst that Iraq mm. could have come up with. Uh, and it certainly requires a regime change in Syria uh, and the replacement of what ISIS has built with a locally driven governance and political mm. structure. Okay, great. If you'd like well, to. I fully agree. So, in, in a way, if you want to address the regional channel, challenge, uh, let's say if you are the U.S. administration, you do have to take into consideration that this is the product of policies that have been pursued of the last, you know, couple of decades. You know, failed states plus dictatorships, oppression, and and the, then the Iranian uh, factor, which is, I think, uh, that what triggered, you know, this wave of violence that we see in the region. So. You cannot say, I want to deal with Iran on the nuclear issue in isolation mm. of dealing with Iran on the Iraq issue, on the Syria issue, on the Lebanon issue. You really have to understand that you cannot give Iran concessions on this topic because it was showing some flexibility and then be, you know, uh, impose sanctions on Iran because of another issue. You do have to have a strategy. And to have that strategy, you need to have, you know, an administration with, you know, with a strategy to implement it. And that would, of course, bring all the pieces together. And you need regional powers to cooperate with you. you need, you're not going to get that all the time. You're not going to get all the forces to cooperate. And I'm not sure that the Iranians really feel that you know, they would want to give up uh, what they've built over the last decades, that they would give up on Hezbollah in Lebanon and give up on the Syrian regime without being tempted by an alternative kind of, you know, the carrot that they are looking for, which is being able to play a role in shaping the future of Syria after Bashar al-Assad. Uh, so uh, it's, there is no easy solution. But the U.S. administration have to have a strategy here. And it does not look as of yet, apart from the pressure on the Maliki government to step down, I have not seen much movement on the Syrian front to push Bashar al-Assad towards, uh, you, know, you know, stepping down and, you know, or let's say convincing the Iranian and Russian uh, allies to go along with a transitional government that would end the, the daily uh, uh, bloodletting in Syria <coughs> and would weaken these radical elements who feed on, on what Assad is doing to his own population. David, would you like to... Uh, well, if there's anything thanks, thanks say, very much. And I agree with, with both of my panelists here. I, I think that the proximate cause is the viciously sectarian governments in, in Iraq and Syria um, backed by Iran. Um, and until you can take care of the problem of Iranian regional meddling, um, then you're not going to get any of this right. You're not going to be able mm. to solve the ISIS. 
this is purely a response um, to Iran um, meddling in Sunni countries. Um, well, ask one last question. Uh, and back, my colleague Halal, if, uh, if you can take uh, the mic back to him, thanks. And yeah, we're, we're, we're cutting it close, so <coughs> I believe this will probably be the last one. Please, hello, thanks. Uh, hello, Franklin of the Hudson Institute Center of Is on Islam. Um, first, let me say I uh, very much appreciate the discussion today. Um, the question I wanted to ask is, concerns the Syrian refugees within Jordan. Uh, David brought the issue up, and I was wondering to what extent, or what we know, or more importantly, what the Jordanian government knows about uh, what's developing there politically or ideologically, uh, both with respect to the future of Jordanian politics, but also the, the issue of, of uh, groups they may become attached to uh, in the region, but especially the Islamic State. David, do you want to start with that? Yeah, thanks. It's a good question. You know, uh, early on in this crisis, if you go back to 2011, uh, the people who are coming across the border, uh, destitute, uh, you know, injured, starving, primarily women and children, uh, were not very well vetted. Um, you know, they'd, they'd come in, they'd be put in a camp or come across the border illegally and, and spread out throughout Jordan. Um, and so I think, you know, through 2011, the beginning of 2012, uh, there didn't really get to be a solid, you know, vetting process uh, by the Jordanian government. Um, we now know with the, you know, with the second refugee camp opened, uh, the large one um, uh, in, in Azraq that's starting to fill up, that um, the refugees are coming across the border, unless there's an issue of family reunification, that they have family in Amman or, or, or anywhere throughout Jordan, uh, they're being sent to the camp. And I think the government understands um, that um, these people are going to have less of an impact on Jordanian society, whether it be a problem of of terrorism or just an economic impact if they're in the camps. So they want to put all these people in, in Azraq. Um, but they're going to they're gonna have a problem. I mean, how many camps can you build? Um, there has not been um, a huge display of political life uh, from these Syrians uh, to date. Um, you, do, you have had um, some reactions in, in Zatari with uh, refugees burning down portions of the camp because the accommodations were insufficient or austere. Um, but that hasn't happened recently. But you do have a you know flooding problem there in, in a couple winters ago, and it's pretty pretty rough rough going. Um, but yeah, I think that this this is going to be a problem because these people aren't going to go home anywhere anytime in the near future, and they are going to develop a political life, and they're not going to have. It's not like the the Palestinians who are citizens and can vote. The, the Syrians are a sizable sizable element in the population, and they they are living among the population. And they will not have a vote. Um, that will uh, that is going to conclude this afternoon's panel. I want to thank you all for coming, and most especially, I want to thank um, my host institution, Hudson, and I especially want to thank our three panelists. And thank you very much again. Thank you.